The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact-checking and corrections are encouraged. Go get a cup of coffee in here, please. It's Groundhog Day again. Good morning, folks. Today is February, Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. Two, 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 two. And I'm wearing a tutu. Tutu, tutu. Anyway, it is Groundhog Day again, or as I like to call it, Mind Dog Day. Every day is the same. You know how we know it's the same? The Rogan nonsense is still there. Trump is still telling, um, he's still causing sedition and, and, and ta- a witness tampering and telling he's going to, telling people he's going to pardon, uh, January 6th defendants. And it's the same day. Every day is the same fucking day. And here we are. It's always the same. So it's Wednesday, uh, Groundhog Day, February 2nd, and um, pretty shitty weather here. looks like we're going to get a little more snow, not a lot. I understand um, the middle of the country might see some snow. Um, I I commensurate with you. (laughs) Been there, done that. Um, February is always a good month for me, though, because it's a short month. Uh, You know, three days, two or three days shorter, depending on what your, what your measurement is, whether it's a 31-day month or a 30-day month, but just a couple of days shorter. It's still four weeks, but it just seems to go much faster. And uh, it seems like winter is on a downhill slide. Now, yesterday, looking at uh, sunset, it was actually light out until 5.45 here yesterday. And I think back to just Christmas time when it was uh, getting dark around 4.30 here. You can actually sense that springtime is on its way, Groundhog Day. And no matter what, whether that stupid rodent sees a shadow or not, there's six weeks left to winter. (laughs) We might get some heavy weather, but winter ends uh, March 20th or March 21st, whatever the freaking day it is. Chad Henson uh, is responsible for keeping me up last night thinking about chopping a pizza in 10. <laughs> Slicing a pizza in 10 slices. Uh, I had my mind twisting in circles, and I figure it's 36 degrees each slice, right? So <laughs> now this is how messed up I am. I'm going to get anal retentive about um, slicing a pizza on the metric system. <laughs> Ten slices per pie. So you can do a slice down the middle once, which would get you uh, 180 degrees uh, <laughs> of pizza each way. But you can't slice it in half again. That's That would be the problem. At 
one slice down the middle and then you need to get your protractor out and get 36 degrees <laughs> uh, each slice which 10 of them would make uh, 360 degrees and there you, there's your circle but uh you can't do it without a protractor <laughs> uh that's where we are let me open up the chat room and see who we got with us we have some people with us kelly good morning kevin good morning craig good morning chad good morning uh that looks like that's all we got in the in the chat room so far. But I'm glad to have you all here. Uh, happy Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Jackie, the joke man, Martling will be with me. Read his entire book yesterday. Um, put me in a really funny place, uh, and probably would not do the same for you because you're not Long Island people, and you, you're not probably not quite as old as I am, and understand some of the references uh, that are in the book. Uh, but it kind of made me a little melancholy. And uh, I'm sure that's not the intent. And for him, it, it's actually a memoir that is uh, somewhat victorious. Listen, <laughs> guy walked away from a, a job that was paying $600,000 a year. Walked away from it because it wasn't enough. Um, it's hard to feel bad about that. <laughs> and I think he acknowledges that in the book. Very uh, interesting book. Um, not as much on Howard Stern as you would think it would be. I mean, there was a lot of Howard Stern stuff in the book, uh, but it's more on um, his background, uh, his college years, uh, where he came from, uh, Start getting a start with Rodney, getting the joke line started, uh, and some of the connections he's made over the years. Now, we're going to be talking about a podcast he's uh, launching tonight, um, and there's a link in the description. I'll be sharing that. And I believe, uh, there's a website for it too. I'll, I'll get that clarified, but that will be at 10 AM. Jackie, the joke man, Martling will be joining me. Interesting stories. A lot to get his take on. I talked to a couple of, um, how would I describe them? Voracious Howard Stern fans. Uh, and, um, I think their memories are skewed. Um, because uh, from what I read in the book, none of the people who <laughs> are really st and uh, have been Howard Stern fans all along up until recently, until he kind of went to uh, Hollywood in his mind anyway, not so much physically. Those people who just still listen to him religiously, but um, have kind of turned against him. I think their memories are skewed because a, a lot, all of them, I talked to several of them yesterday, and all of them are under the impression that uh, Jackie was back on the Howard Stern show after he left. He, he came back for visits. Uh, doesn't appear, to, uh, especially from what I read in the book, it seems like there was only one phone call when he actually got through to Howard after uh, leaving the show. But oh, we'll, we'll get to that when he gets here. Just interesting stuff. As I mentioned, it's Groundhog Day. Nothing ever seems to change around here, especially... Uh, for me, it's uh, I'm stuck in this cubicle, <laughs> this this rectangle that you see me in. Actually, yeah, that's not true. I was uh, out a lot, out and about a lot yesterday, but uh, did spend an entire day with the book. Pretty quick read if you're determined to read through it. Um, a lot of interesting stuff there. And stuff for people who don't know Long Island, it occurred to me, and I, I've always known this, but reading the book, it's, it's very... Uh, apparent that <clears throat> long island is not a um very 
Um, not one place. Jackie's upbringing is North Shore, um, Western Long Island. And my upbringing is South Shore, Central Long Island. And then there's Eastern Long Island and North Fork and South Fork. So it's like four different places on Long Island, four different real, real cultures on Long Island. It's a very different place. And that becomes apparent if you're from Long Island and know it when some of the stuff he's describing in the book um, definitely comes across as you don't know Long Island if you think there's only one Long Island. If you judge Long Island by me, you don't know Jackie Martin's uh, Long Island. Uh, or um, I want to say Billy Joel. Well, Billy Joel was a Levittown guy. But for the last 40 years, he's been a Montauk guy. And Montauk is a much different culture than we have here. So, uh, and I know the book's been out a while. It's, it's kind of, uh, we, we really want to talk about the podcast that he's launching tonight with Peter Bales called Stand Up Memories. And he's got a ton of them. As he's a guy who actually, you know, comedy clubs were happening in LA there was the stuff in Fort Lauderdale that was happening in the mid 70s uh and in LA you had uh, the comedy club and, and places like that and improv was certainly happening Caroline's in New York City but for the most part America had not seen the comedy club wave that happened in the 80s and Jackie was there for all of that and had some uh some interesting historical insights on how the evolution of stand-up comedy. I think it's a fascinating read for people who are fans of comedy and stand-up comedy in particular. So uh, we'll talk about that anyway later on today. What's going on in the world today? Before Jackie gets in here, some some of the things we want to kind of just touch base on. Uh, the Rogan shit's never going to go away, but it just it's it's. The idol worship of the guy now, it, it, the people who are wrapping their arms around him are just like ready to bow down and kiss his feet and, and, and kiss a picture of him every night when they go to bed and just worship Joe Rogan as if he's some kind of God. He's infallible and almighty and the answer to all their problems. It's madness. It's madness, I tell you. The cult of personality. And it's, it, we go from one to the next in America right now. It's cult of personalities. Whether, and it, it's not really a political thing. It really doesn't matter what your political ideologies are. People are in need of a savior, a messiah, somebody who's going to show the way out of this fucked up situation we call life. Doesn't, it's not going to happen, man. Uh, do I need to get uh, Dave the Prophet back on and uh, <laughs> and kind of show you uh, where, where <laughs> the proof of of there is no Messiah coming to save us. There, there is there's no second coming, and it's not going to be a bald headed podcaster. It's not going to be a politician. Wait a minute, it's not going to be a bald headed podcaster. Thought I was it. Fuck! I wanted to run for Messiah this year. That was kind of my plan. Uh, fuck me. Anyway, just not going to happen. The cult of personality is insane. To, in, uh, we are at an insane level of cult of personality. Um, 
Whoopi Goldberg, you following that shit? Um, Whoopi, 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 whoopi. Now, she got suspended from The View, which, you know, going to break my heart. (laughs) Like, have you ever watched an episode of The View? I have not. I've seen clips here and there on social media I wish I didn't see. Um, But obviously, uh, some people are... Some people want Whoopi Goldberg fired. Some people are sad that she got uh, suspended at all. This is what I understand about the situation. And if I'm wrong, again, this is why I I have a uh, support system here to say, no, Doug, you got it wrong. I think what happened was they were discussing the Holocaust in reference to this mouse book, um, Mao's book, that Schools in Tennessee don't want uh, in their school libraries because they view some of the stuff as pornographic. And Whoopi was saying the Holocaust was not about race. And I think I understand what she meant. Um, but obviously the Holocaust was about creating a master race. So I, you can't say an effort to create the master race was not about race. I get that. I, I don't understand why people are so worked up over this, over that position, though. Because I have a lot of Jewish friends, lots of Jewish friends. Most of them consider themselves Caucasian as a race. I do have two black friends who are Jewish, and they obviously are black. So is Jewishness, is is being Jewish a race? Is is Jew a race? I don't think it is. And I think that's what she was saying when she also went on to kind of almost say that you can't you can't make anything racial unless it's about black people. Uh, um, and that, I guess, that's probably what got a lot of people upset. But no, it's the people... Um, and, and this is where I'm confused, and I'm not taking a side here. I'm not taking Whoopi's side at all. I'm just trying to understand why people are so upset that she doesn't see the Holocaust as necessarily being a racial issue because I don't see Jewishness as a race. I see it as a culture, and I see it as a religion. I know people who are Jewish and not of the religion of Judaism, which is strange to me, but it's a cultural thing. Racially, I'm almost certain, and I, I have, we'll talk to several today, <laughs> and I'm going to ask each one, do you consider yourself Caucasian, or is Jewish your race? I don't know. If somebody can explain that to me, what the big fuss is about saying, and I do get it. I mean, as I just said, the Holocaust was about creating a master race, so obviously it's about race, but not... If you're a black person and you're thinking race means white or black or brown or red or or Asian, but uh, whether it you know people calling for her to be fired because she's of that idea, that's crazy. We're gonna start firing firing people because they ex- express ideas that we don't necessarily. And why? The outrage is what really is, okay, she doesn't think that. Let's have that discussion about it and see if we can um, explain to her that Holocaust was about creating a master race. So that simple 
It's about race, even though the people that were being exterminated happened to all be Caucasian. The the people that were dying in the concentration camps were all Caucasian. Um, it was about cleansing Caucasian, the Caucasian race, uh, in creating a master race. So in that sense, it absolutely was about race. But again, what all I'm confused about is the outrage. Uh, because she was wrong, but not not wrong in a sense that she's trying to hurt people. Well, maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. Please explain to me if you got if you got a better take on this. I would love to hear about it because I'm um, I'm a little confused about it. I got to read some of the comments that's going on in the chat room and see if any anybody's keeping up with me or straightening me out on some of this stuff. Uh, well, I'm going to go all the way back to Michael Zinn, who says uh, there's a great documentary also coming on. Uh, what is this about the Jackie stuff? Uh, a, a documentary about ha uh, Jackie's? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure because it seems to be quite a ways back, like 906. That was like 11 minutes ago. I wasn't on the Whoopi stuff then. I was on the Jackie stuff then. So uh, I'm thinking that documentary is about... <laughs> Uh, uh, comedy. I don't know. We'll find out. I'll scroll down and see more comments. Uh, uh, wait, I missed something before this. Uh, Kevin saying something about, oh, he had COVID, then he injured his back. 22 has been awesome so far. Yeah, well, it, things, it, you got one more coming, my friend. Things happen in threes. Wife didn't go out for, uh, mope or bread. Are you using voice to text? Mope or bread, milk or bread, but she picked up two ounces of flour yesterday. <laughs> milk, yes, milk or bread. Yeah, I think you're using voice to text, or you got fat fingers like me, and typing is not your thing. Um, maybe if you make snow angels, it will help you back. I got a little bit of back stiffness. It actually took five days or four days now. Uh, no, I was at Sunday shoveling, so three days. For my back to get really stiff, very stiff today. I gotta go out and do some snow angels with you. I'll be commensurating with you. We'll do like in a Long Island to Oklahoma snow angel. Um, I don't know chakra meeting something. Alternate between heating and yeah, cold, hot and cold. I get that stuff. I'm just mad at myself because I know I better my spine already held together with titanium screw. Whoa, that's interesting. Would you crash a plane? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to make fun of your situation. She brought up an interesting, oh, this is about Whoopi. She brought up an interesting issue about how people perceive these things, race and the Holocaust. Some people view ethnicity as race, but I have never seen Jewish on a questionnaire under ethnicity. Um, I don't know. I don't know about that. Just my personal guess as uh as POC, she's used, used to uh, racism being about color of skin only. She just needs to grow a little with some education on the subject. I can see how, as a POC, uh, she could have bias, a person of color. That's what POC. I'm, like, trying to figure out what POC means. Now, um, yeah. Yeah, I think you have it right, Kevin. But why the outrage about it? Oh, she got something wrong. Uh, uh, did she... 
was she indignant about it and saying you have to see things my way i'm right and you're all wrong and stamping her feet about it uh, like i don't understand where the outrage comes from people need outrage they have become uh, comfortable in it ah it's nuts yeah no it is that is nuts i don't uh, i don't get that and we can tweet about today uh <laughs> uh Snow Angels Across America. Yeah, we'll be doing that. Uh, I'll, I'll be doing that. I'm going to do what Kevin says, hot and cold, but Snow Angels is part of the cold. Like, kind of heat. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm seriously might do something like that. It might be ice pack. Might just put like a uh, an ice bag of snow on my back after the heating pad, something like that. Uh, I won't be. I won't be going out doing any um, workouts or anything today. So. Anyway, uh, if you're just joining me, looking forward to talking with Jackie the Joke Man Martling at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, which is about 40 minutes from now. That should be a very interesting conversation. I think you should stick with me for that. Um, what else is going on besides the, the whoopee nonsense, which uh, I still haven't really cleared up too much about? Um, Ukraine is still just a kind of um, game of chicken and, and threats and going back and forth, which is better than the alternative of actual war happening. Now, I heard uh, Blinken, Blinken and Dinkin, whoever, uh, you know, uh, was saying that if Russia did invade Ukraine, they would be met with um, swift retaliation. God, I hope... Uh, as an American, I am sick of war. As an, a 62-year-old American in my 63rd year now, I'm just so sick of war. And I think, and I've been through enough of, of anti-war protests and how, they, how it always starts out where people are gung-ho for war. People, and this has at least been my... Um, my experience, people get gung-ho for war in the beginning. Then the protests start. A few uh, dissenting voices come out and come to the streets. And then that grows. And then before you know it, uh, we're not paying attention to soldiers dying overseas. What we're paying attention to is the infighting in America over whether we should be in a war or not. And after fighting two wars for almost 20 years and depleting and going deep into debt over it, when we were finally at a place where we were almost at a balanced budget, we actually Clinton did balance the budget, and so we weren't going deeper into debt for, what, three or four years? We had, we had stasis where we weren't losing money. We decided to go into two wars that bankrupt us. Well, we're financially weak, and... This is something we, in America, we, we're in denial about. We don't want to think about it. But we are, uh, well, how do I put this? If you're a person who lives paycheck to paycheck, you're one disaster away from losing your home. Because you don't have the funds to deal with the tragedies that can happen. A roof gets blown off and you got no money for it and you got in your homeowner's insurance is behind or whatever because you live week to week. Um, or your 
your car dies and you can't get to work and you have no no funds now to get a new car because you live week to week. This is America right now. We are we can't afford another war. Simple as that. We live in a world where we are our debt is leveraged <laughs> to the max. We have no money and we borrowed no more. And the only solution we have is to print more phony money. Um, and so when, with the prospect of another war, God, I, you know, we just, and I think Russia understands this, of course, because, um, of course they understand it and they understand that no matter how determined government or the Pentagon or any, any of the people in power are to stand up to aggression um, the will of the people, of American people for war, is 50-50 at best. And so if it gets started, first of all, we're un- we'll underfund it. All the money will go back into the military. That $300 million a day we were saving by pulling out of Afghanistan, not saving, just stop spending, stop wasting. All that money goes back into the waste, and we start fighting in the streets here again over that. As if we don't have enough bullshit to fight over here in America. We got to fight over Joe Rogan. We can't afford to fight over a fucking war. So, um, on one hand, the game of chicken and the, the escalation of words is a troubling thing. But I'd rather have that than, um, than full-out war. So, maybe... <laughs> As strange as it says, maybe just the, the talk and the bullshit and the endless game of chicken is a positive thing in some way. I don't know. I try to spin spin a positive uh, take on this. It's really difficult catching up with some more uh, comments from the peanut gallery here. Um, uh, where were we? I'm a snow angel. Kelly, I'm a snow angel. Keep me warm. I, uh, Brett's not here. And Carl's not here. Hey, <laughs> you're two men. First of all, Kelly, you have to clear all your uh, all your acti- extracurricular activities with your manager. Uh, so I would urge you to get Carl's okay on any uh, of this activity that you are seeking here. Uh, and secondly, Brett's not here. But his shirt is here. His shirt is with me. Uh, but I don't have the gray hair ready for you. Uh, Jamie Dykes, uh, scoundrel that he is, uh, because you always have to come second at war. That's not true. That's not true, scoundrel. This is why you must show up for a duel, because you say things that aren't true. Um Kevin says, as a disabled vet, I have a strong opinion on war. We are always we always have dollars to fight them, but never dollars to take care of those who did the fighting by the way they need to be taken care of. Um, as a guy who works in the vet, uh, I do a lot of work with vets and for 40 years now, and you probably you should check out uh, the the show I did with Dr. Edward Tick last week about coming home in Vietnam. I don't know if it's a question of funding. I think uh, 
BAs, and I'm not saying we can't do more for for funding in the vets. BAs are uh, tricky places, and not there's no two that are alike. I play I play in many, but five that particular facilities that I rotate at, not one of them is the same. Some of them, two of them, I should say, two of the five that I play in regularly are really nice facilities uh guys are taking care care of well given given really good treatment uh and the facility itself you you it's like a seven star hotel not a five star hotel it's really really nice and then the three other ones are in various states of shitty i'm not sure if it's a money thing or a management thing or I do agree that our vets are not taken care of the way they should be. Don't get me wrong. I'm just sure, not sure it's a money thing or a uh, management thing or a mindset thing or just a no standards, no, no. It's a very hard thing to pull down why our VAs are not better, uh, better equipped, better managed, all of that stuff. And some of them are. Some of them are, like I said, are really impressive uh from agent orange to burn pits so, to radioactive exposure to mental health ptsd for millions of americans i agree i guess it's a constant thing we never get taken care of for, for the vets um there are people that work towards that though dr tick is definitely one of those people who were who is um an activist and an advocate for better health. And there's lots of those. And, I, you know, people like me who do what we can to make it a little better for the people. In the, and to be clear here, <laughs> anybody can go volunteer at a VA. Uh, so as, and I don't want to fucking get on a fucking soapbox here, but as Americans, we can't, we can't bitch about something and and do nothing, you know. Bitch about it all day, and then when it comes to actually putting something out there and 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 do being active about it, we can't do it. And you don't need to have any special skills or qualifications to go volunteer at a VA. Uh, and I just I don't just play music there. I do lots of volunteer work to help with uh, the care. I don't obviously not qualified as a nurse or a nurse practitioner or any of that kind of stuff, but I can work with the staff and ease some of their burden so that they can take better care of the vets. And I do that. And so there's no excuse for anybody in America who sees this as a problem, not to get involved and go out and do something yourself. You don't need any, you don't need special qualifications. You can just walk in off the street and say, I want to volunteer. I want to help. Our people are not cared for uh, to the way I think they should be cared for. I want to do something about it. So there's that. Uh, there's no reason to be um, vocal about it, but not not active about it. Yeah, lots of easy talk. Nobody does the work. Uh, good morning, Paul J. Paul, man, you gotta you gotta be on the program one day. You really do. I, I saw some of the the uh, your rock and roll heyday videos yesterday. Very impressive stuff. I think you got an interesting 
history and would love to feature you on the program one day. You don't have to do a whole hour interview. Just stop by and let the people know about what it is you do and what you're doing now and a little bit of your history in in music. Uh, Kelly says that's true. Good point. I don't know what she's talking about, whether she's talking about um, volunteering or talking about getting permission from her manager to do extracurricular work. (laughs) I stay out of my local VA hospital, even though I have a service-connected disabilities. They're responsible for uh, too many old guys already in with no options, waiting for appointments and stuff. Um, that's interesting because most of because I'm not I'm no spring chicken anymore. When I go to the VA, it doesn't seem like. It's filled with old people, <laughs> but then again. Uh, I, it's all relative, right? So if I see somebody my age, I don't think of them as old. But I do see lots of lots of uh, people younger than me, uh, lots of men and women who are in their forties, people who are even thirties, Iraq and Afghanistan vets who have come back in their mid thirties and dealing with, especially the PTSD stuff. And uh, you know, PTSD. Uh, it's been around for, and Carlin has a bit on this, and it's, it's he makes it funny somehow. But it's been around since the advent of war. It's been around thousands of years. We just keep changing the name of it. And but and this was interesting. Again, check out the uh, the episode on Monday TV from last weekend. I'm not here to prom- obviously not. On in promotional mode. Yeah, check out my stuff. But the interview with Dr. Edward Tick last week um, about PTSD, the ancients had a better way of dealing with it. Um, the ancients, and I mean, I'm going back a thousand, two thousand years in the history of war in, in Europe and Asia. It was necessary for warriors to have a creative outlet. And this is whole Dr. Tick, and he's a, a clinical psych, psychotherapist and, and, and has deals with this stuff a lot. But the idea that what you're doing when you, when you engage in war is traumatic to your emotional state, your, your mental state, and the, only, the best outlet for that, not the only outlet for that, the best outlet for that is free expression through the arts. And so drumming dance all that kind of stuff even we saw in in north america a thousand years ago with the native americans had rituals and war dances and drumming rituals which were meant to deal with ptsd and lessen and they didn't call it that of course at the time but lessen the effects of mental trauma and emotional trauma by expressing in the arts, and that's what dan- what drum circles were all about. That's what um, uh, I'm sorry, I wasn't reading this. Never not branding. I'm a flirt. Like your like your hair. I I oh yeah, I get it. Um, what was I? Oh, PTSD. Now <laughs> trying to stay on track here, folks. Um, so. But we don't have that. We don't encourage it. And there's only few VAs in America that actually accept that as a valid treatment for PTSD. Now, Dr. Tick is encouraging poetry, and he's uh, he's taking guys back to Vietnam and, and kind of 
Vietnam vets, obviously, uh, introduced them to expressing themselves through through um, poetry and seeing real results as far as their the nightmares stop and all the stuff uh, that the depression and all that stuff seems to go away when there is some form of artistic expression. So that, that's an interesting thing. I think you, you'd be uh, inspired and, and motivated to help out a little more if you watch the episode I did with Dr. Tick. Again, not trying to be a promotional guy here. Uh, I read that one already. Where are we? Uh, Kevin says, I have good Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Federal. I stay out of the system and let those options have. Yeah, that. I guess I guess that helps, you know, if you don't need to take up uh, some of the resources that would no- normally go to um, the people in there. The way you rate your disability is the same money as well. It's ridiculous. I'm 40% plus 10% plus 10%, and that's, uh, that rounds out to 50%. Wait, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Does it? I don't know. You've Didn't we have math lessons yesterday? Don't fuck with the dog today. Fucking throwing the ball again with these numbers. All right, let's do the trigonometry review then, because it's morning. No math in the morning. PTSD is one of those conditions that still isn't officially recognized for what it is. I heard those sufferers being dismissed because the condition isn't one specific, isn't from one specific incident. I don't know. I don't know about that. I do think it it is a, a officially recognized for what it is, at least here. I mean, maybe not all over the world, but in the VA here. It is definitely recognized for what it is. Uh, what a heart, dog. A real one. Why? Why? What did I say? What did I do? I don't know. I'm not a good guy. Don't don't get don't be under the impression that I'm a good guy. Uh, Paul says they will for sure. I think that means he'll come on the show. That would be cool. Paul's a great guy. If you don't know him, uh, go to my Facebook page and then you'll find Paul J's stuff there and look him up. Uh, we kind of play the same uh, <laughs> same Long Island venues a lot. He has a band called Rewind, and a, a very good band. And he's he's a guitar player, but he uh, he's a great vocalist, but a guitar player as well. But he doesn't play guitar in the band for some reason. I <laughs> guess uh, they have a very good guitar player and a keyboard player, so I guess maybe it's not needed. But he's also a very good guitar player as well. So, uh, Getting permission should be hard. Uh, that's what she said. Wait, getting permission for what? Oh, um, from from your manager? Shouldn't be hard. Yeah, no, Carl will give his blessing as long as he wants to oversee the contract and make sure he's getting his 10%. It's often the result of living on the edge under constant threat of imminent disaster. Yeah, yeah, that's what PTSD it's, it's the, I It's the fear, but it also... It can come from a lot of things. It can come from a lot of things of giving an order, like in Vietnam. And I go back to Vietnam because that's my war. It's my generation's war. It's one that I uh, that hits home with me, particularly. Uh, in Vietnam, there were a lot of contributing factors to PSD. It's not just the fact of living under constant fear of uh, what to, what the next moment might bring. 
but it was also giving orders to do some really atrocious things and seeing so much death. When you can see your guys get their le- your best friend get his legs blown off right next to you, and then see a village burnt down with children and and women screaming and dying the next moment. So all of that compounds into you know some severe emotional and mental trauma. There's lots of things that go into it. It's not just um, shell shock, compact fatigue, PSD. It's all, it's all, and you can go back a thousand years and find different names for it. Uh, I wonder if worrying about an evading army is as stressful as scuds flying over, over you. Um, well, I know some people, again, I, I, I worked closely with some people from Israel for about two years uh, and a consulting project and a marketing thing that I did. And um, talked a great deal about that, about the ideas of having every apartment building had a bomb shelter in it. And they would just use it. It became a way of life. So it's not, you know, even in the military, I mean, everybody in Israel is uh, has to serve in the military at some point. But people who were not in the military, just in civilian life, have to deal with that at all times. And there's always, they're used to getting bombed. It's just a way of life. And they don't even think it's, uh, have a second thought about it. And that, to me, was fascinating. Because I, being separated uh, from most of our enemies, (laughs) I say most of our enemies, by an ocean, we've never really had to deal with that, except in 1962, I was way too young to, and we didn't actually have the the bombs coming over, but the threat of of bombs coming over was not real most of my life. And the time it was, I was uh, I was two years old, three years old at the time, so it was uh, it was not real for me then either. But I grew up in an era when we had to we had to have drills, bomb drills, and get under your desk, turn off the lights, duck and cover. They called it. Uh, and that was stressful for, for kindergartners and grade school kids. The idea, and once you figured out what it was really all about, that we were hiding from bombs, uh, um, wait a minute, you guys are doing math again. I'm going to have to start, uh, start banning the math people. No math in the morning. Great. <laughs> Math is an afternoon exercise. The VA schedule rating disability is 40 plus 10 plus 10 equals 46, round up to 50. Now, again, no more math, please. Please, no math. It's just too early for math. It's coffee time. Uh, first condition is 40% disabling. If you're 60% able, the next 10, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. If a train leaves Chicago, Carrying a tenth of a slice, a tenth slice of pizza, which is at um, eighty-six degrees Fahrenheit, and another train leaves New York uh, with an eighth slice of pizza uh, at thirty-six degrees Celsius, moving at thirty-seven miles an hour. I mean, it's still morning, and I still need my coffee. And that's all that really matters. What the fuck did you just walk into? Exactly. You walked into math problems in the fucking morning. Good morning, hack. Good afternoon, hack. You're probably better suited to deal with this math shit than I am since uh, 
since it's afternoon where you are. I'm awaiting uh, in about 17 minutes or so. Jackie the Joke Man Martling will be here. We'll talk about his new podcast called Stand Up Memories with Peter Bells uh, and find out a little bit about what the intent of that program is. Whether I'm sure it's not going to be just Jackie and Peter telling stories about old stand-up stuff all day. I'm, I'm assuming they're going to be having some uh, some guests on. I know it's a highly produced program. Uh, our friend Michael Zinn has a production studio here in Long Island that seems to be, I want to call it world-class, Long Island, New York-class uh, production studio where at which this uh, podcast is being filmed, produced out, premieres tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. I know that's a little late for the people on the other side of the ocean and a little early for some of the people on the other side of America. Uh, but it is what it is. Yeah, time zones, you know, and all that. Um, but that should be interesting. I also want to talk about his book because I did spend the whole day reading his book yesterday from cover to, to the, uh, right through the entire book. Thank God they were for the pictures. <laughs> There are uh, a couple of several pages of pictures that made the read go a, a lot uh, a lot faster than I anticipated. But it's a very interesting read, especially if you're um, a fan of the history of comedy. You don't necessarily have to be a Howard Stern fan, although there is Howard Stern stuff in it. Uh, of course, you, you couldn't have a Jackie memoir. Uh, without including the Howard Stern stuff. So um, so that's going to be in 15 minutes now. I guess I should run the sponsors uh, portion of the program before it gets here. So now seems like a good time to do that. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to uh, sip my coffee and listen about Koa Coffee. Um, Koa Coffee is the best coffee in America, according to Forbes magazine. Did you know that? Best coffee in America. Uh, I know overseas you guys are probably tea drinkers, right? Tea, tea more than coffee. I'm just assuming that. Because uh, we associate the UK with tea. Tea. I've never had, I don't think I, well, I shouldn't say never. I drink iced tea. <laughs> but I would never make myself a cup of hot tea. Um, but... Um, where was I? I'm di I digress. Cold coffee is the best coffee in America, uh, by, as, at least according to Forbes magazine, who rated the top 10 coffees of the world. Now, I, I don't know where we came in on the world scale. I have to look at that. Who's the best coffee in the world? On that note, Joe Andrus is sending me a sampler pack of some of the coffee that he deals with, uh, uh, he deals in. And so I look forward to uh, comparing that to cold coffee. But as of now, I can say unequivocally, unequivocally, can say that 10, 10 times fast in the morning, um, that cold coffee is the best coffee I've ever had to this point. I'm hoping, this is a weird thing to hope, I'm hoping Joe Andrews' coffee is not as good. Because if it is better, that leaves me in a funny position with my sponsors. Uh, so I'm hoping Koa Coffee will be better than the coffee samples Joe is sending me. <laughs> if not, I'm going to have to make Joe a sponsor somehow. Uh, but for right now, we are sponsored by Koa Coffee, the best coffee in America. This episode is brought to you by Koa Coffee. 
If you are a coffee connoisseur and want to experience the best coffee Hawaii has to offer, no blends, no compromise, try the true taste of Aloha. Koa Coffee produces premium Hawaiian coffee, hand-picked, expertly roasted, and delivered from Hawaii to your door with Aloha. From award-winning 100% Kona coffee grown on the slopes of the Mauna Loa volcano to the unique mocha beans of Maui, they strive to provide their loyal customers with the best quality and freshness. Since 1997, Koa Coffee has been known far and wide as a product of utmost quality and their awards proven. Koa Coffee was featured in Forbes' Top 10 Coffees of the World. This is the coffee Forbes called the best coffee in America. Find out what it's all about. Go to minddogtv.com slash coffee. Minddogtv.com slash coffee. Get your coffee. No tea. No tea drinkers allowed. Just get coffee. Good coffee. The best coffee in America. It's Koa Coffee. Yeah. Love that Koa Coffee, baby. Love to watch a girl run down the beach, too. That's my one of my favorite things is to watch a girl run, run down the beach. Um, I see that uh, Brett Erickson is going to be on another Fat Guy Cooks on YouTube, uh, Hack Oddities um, cooking show. Uh, you should check that out, by the way. Uh, and I'm sorry I don't have a link ready for you, but we'll we'll get a link and put it in the description. Um, another Fat Guy Cooks. Uh, interesting show. Lots of... Um, celebrities and comedians that and other uh folks that uh hack has become friends with uh on the program and uh the big secret out that i guess i'm not supposed to say uh it's a secret or until it gets on youtube uh is our friend brett now i think i i use the term friend uh presumptively presumptively because um i think he's a little mad at me well I have I did reach out to him the other day about because he was very vocal on Twitter about the Rogan thing and I uh, this was Sunday night and I said I'm gonna be doing a I have to touch on the Rogan stuff you want to come on the program I texted him uh, you want to come on the program tomorrow morning to discuss this thing. I haven't heard back from him I'm just thinking he's seen some of my anti-Rogan and uh, not anti-Rogan. I want I, all I want out of Rogan, and I don't want him censored, obviously. And we've been down this road, and no need for me to beat this bush all over again. But all I want is Rogan to be more self-aware, more responsible. Not because I'm really all that worried that about the things he gets wrong. I want him to be more responsible for selfish reasons. Number one, that. The more podcasters are irresponsible and just putting out nonsense like this, the more impetus the government has to get involved in what we do. So for every, even little guys like me, for every one of us, we need to be more self-policing to keep things like the FCC that were involved in radio. And Jackie, who will be joining me shortly, uh, knows all about the perils of the FCC and uh what they did to radio and how they made existing in in radio format hell now the technology has changed and the internet has become the the wild west that radio could have been if not 
for the FCC. But we don't want an FCC. We don't want a government regulating body. Of course, the Internet is worldwide. It's not America. It's not American, even though America was part of uh, initiating, it grew out of American systems. It's not American. So it would be really hard for governments, but China does it, North Korea does it. They, they mandate their internet. They, they regulate their internet or mandate what can be done and what can't be done and what, what you can have access to. And we've heard for years about this net neutrality movement and, you know, who controls the pipes. Uh, Hack says he knows the FCC from the Eminem song. <laughs> well, we don't. We don't want, and it would be different governments. Obviously, different nations would have different rules, but we don't want that. And so, the my whole thing on this Rogan thing is about responsibility. Has been, we all need to um, police ourselves to a certain degree, or at least make an effort. To keep the wolves at bay, keep the um, keep the the governments from getting involved and stepping on what we do, uh, and nobody wants that. We, we got it good right now, and we got it good. You, you, that's the time where you really need to be on your best behavior to keep it good and keep the cops away. Um, so, and I don't want to go hold down that whole fucking road again. We've talked about that ad nauseum. Uh, I'm sick of it. And the other part of uh, of the Rogan's thing is, you know, just the, the looking for a messiah. When Rogan goes away, and eventually probably that stuff will die down and well, people will stop talking about Rogan, they'll find someone else to be the next fucking messiah. And again, I don't want to have to get prophet dave on here to tell us uh, that jesus is real and he's coming back and or he's already here and whatever i don't know we don't we don't want to go down the, the uh brother dave route of uh depending on a messiah to save us from ourselves um religion's a, a, a crazy thing but with that we've kind of got this new religion of the next individual that comes along, we're just going to prop him up and make him another false idol. One after another. So right now, that's Rogan. Uh, and uh, sooner or later, it will be... No, it's not going to be me. Not going to be me. I don't want... I, I was going to run for Messiah, uh, but it turns out I have too many uh, skeletons... Uh, <laughs> What? I didn't mention his last name. Uh, it, it was a secret. I never mentioned the last name. All I said was Brett. Um, could have been referring to Brett Brock, sexy devil that he is. You know you've already had him on. Um, but I could have been, I don't know, there's other Bretts out there. Um, I never mentioned the last name. So anyway, uh, it was a secret. It still remains a secret. People have no idea who I'm talking about. I love a good bag. What, what did I miss? A good bag, Evan, uh, giving me ideas for spicy PGs. What? Uh, I drank Koa coffee and uh, bit five people. 
Well, I'm not sure they're re- those two things are related, Carl. Uh, how many people do you bite on a normal day? Uh, what do we? Oh man, uh, we got some comments here. Uh, you have too many skeletons in your body. Yes, I do. In my closet, in it's like being big boned. I do have a big bone. Uh, we are <laughs> waiting, Jackie, the Joe, and Martin. And but it seems like uh, Hack is already way ahead of the comedic effort here this morning and uh wanting to play stump the comic or stump stump the comedian stump the joke man it was the name of the game some good stuff about stump the joke uh joke man i want the old rogan is he really going to have more perspective is he really going to do that that's what i want um i'm not really sure the only thing i i'm so fucking sick of fucking talking about it but the only thing I think that has changed about Rogan is his he's become more dug in over the last couple of years. In other words, he gets an opinion and he's he stops listening to other opinions. Now, uh, he, there was some evidence like two years ago, and I brought this up several times already. When the Antifa, when the when the fire, wildfires in Northern California, and he came on and said it was started by leftists, Antifa, and all those people, and was proven wrong. He came on and apologized for that, and realized and, and recognized that saying statements like that could cause some violence and conflict because people will get it in their ideas that now we have to attack certain people because they're starting wildfire, blah blah blah. And was wrong and apologized for that, and, and said he would uh, change his ways. But that was two and a half years ago. And that was the last time he did any anything similar to that. Now, if he's proven wrong, he gets angry and says, ah, that's fuckery. Uh, check your sources. It's the government, deep state, uh, controlling this news source. That's the reaction he gets. That's the only way I've seen him change. Other than that, he's always been a conspiratorial uh, nut job. I mean, this is a guy who was on the moon landing was fake hard for over a decade. And telling people, if you didn't believe that, you were a fool. If you didn't believe the moon landing was fake, you were a fool. Uh, So there was that. Ladies and gentlemen, it looks like the time has arrived. Uh, My guest today is uh, legendary in um, the field of stand-up comedy and a Long Island legend and, and part of the part of a similar culture to where I grew up in. Uh, uh, he's got a podcast, as uh, I mentioned, that is launching today or tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time called Stand Up Memories. His book is called uh, Bow to Stern. It's a memoir of his incredible life, ladies and gentlemen. Please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Jackie, the joke man, Martling, to the Mind Dog Coffee with the Dog show. Jackie, Welcome. Uh, how you doing? Uh, the first thing I'm trying to do is to get this thing to go to full screen, and I know nothing about this, and it makes me crazy. Oh, so I you? guess I'm just going to have to go with that. Hi! Uh, how, you, how you doing, Jackie? <laughs> you know, every time I go to touch something, it's different. So is there a... Is there a there's a. Uh, I guess you can make uh, your browser full screen. I'm not sure what, what uh, whether you're on a computer or a tablet or what. You're, I'm on. You're I'm on an, an iPad, iPad, and it's always come up full screen before every time I've ever done this. Uh, so, can, uh, 
Can you deal oh, with it? Because uh, you look really good. I mean, it's your all right. Yeah, it doesn't matter as long as look. It, so, in other words, you're not seeing a whole bunch of garbage on the left. I'm just seeing that. No, we're not seeing a whole bunch of garbage. Is there somebody sitting at the desk behind you, or is that a puppet? <laughs> that is a Rodney Dangerfield doll. That's my uh, good luck charm. <laughs> I, I kind of was uh, a little creepy in the back. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's weird. If there's ever a mannequin or a doll like that of any kind in a room or in somebody's backyard, it's really weird how when you walk into the room, you don't play to it, but you're, <clears throat> there's an awareness. Right. Like after I do these interviews, a lot of times still on my desk, and I walk in, I I go to say, eh, eh, good morning. You know, it's just, just <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, after seven or eight years, you should think you'd uh, get used to it. So it's nice to meet you. Jeff Dwoskin uh, was singing your praise. I said, don't sing his praise. I didn't even meet the guy yet. I have no idea who he is. <laughs> but... Uh, it's nice to meet you, and Jeff gives you very high uh, high regards. Well, he, he's crazy. He's a liar. Don't believe a word he says. I'm a rotten person. But uh, Who, who said anything be about believing him? Where, now, where am I talking to? Where? Yeah, uh, where physically. I'm, I'm in Shoreham, uh, Shoreham, Long Island, New York. Because uh, oh, I'm hearing a twinge of some kind of accent. It didn't sound like Long Island. Um, well, that's unusual, because usually people spot me right away as Long Island. But... To your point, I mentioned it this morning there because we have a lot of people in England and in uh, in the UK and Wales and all over the world and and the western part of the United States. They think of Long Island as one thing, but your upbringing on Long Island is very different from mine. You are North Shore, uh, Nassau County. I'm South Shore, Suffolk County. Those are really two different worlds and two different Completely cultures. different worlds. You know, when I went to Michigan State, they everybody thought that Long Island was completely covered with pavement. You know, like, <laughs> right. and then I bring my roommate out here and he's like, wow, this is the most beautiful place I've ever been. You know, it's a... Uh, it's a gorgeous place, Long Island. Right, know? and I'm on the North Shore now, out in Shoreham, and it, it's a, a completely different culture again from both of those. Where you live, like that Sagamore Hill area, which was which was beautiful, and 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 the South Shore, which is kind of Brooklyny. <laughs> right. You know, my uh, my great grandfather actually ran Sagamore Hill. Right. For, I uh, I read I, your entire book yesterday. You read it. Entire book in one day. <laughs> I wouldn't have sent it if I thought you were going to read it. Hey, where'd you come from on the South Shore? Uh, Lindenhurst, Copeg area. Right ah. on the border of Lindenhurst and Copeg. So, uh, Studio low rent. theater. Yeah, low, <laughs> low rent. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so uh, let's, if you, I know we want to talk about the podcast, but <clears throat> if we could start with the book, because there's some fascinating stuff in there. Let um, me just say, uh, uh, quit. these aren't even really plugs especially since you say you got some stuff overseas. So I'm currently working on a podcast with a guy from Cork, Ireland, and I'm doing stuff with a couple of guys from the UK. So I just want to tell people my, my email, and I really do answer every email, is jokeland at AOL.com, J-O-K-E-L-A-N-D at AOL.com. And I do all shows. I guess uh, being on this is proof. I'm teasing you. <laughs> But I answer all emails, and I'm I especially international. I'd love to do anything to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm this close to uh, one foot in the grave, so I want to get over there while I still can. All right, yeah. that's the end of my plug, or self-promotion, whatever you call it. Well, well, we put the link in the description for your email as well, and we do have a a, a uh, English uh, show host actually in the chat room right now. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Now, are you a comic? Are you a broadcaster? Are you a what? 
I'm an, uh, I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy. I've been a musician like like you for since uh, probably as long uh, my entire life. Seven years old. Did my first paying gig at seven years old. So. Like around Long Island, like yeah. bands uh, or weddings. Yeah, or uh, well, solo you know, gigs or... I st- I started in cover bands, obviously around Long Island. Then did like a very similar situation to you. When I had went out west to be uh, to university and and did some touring out there open for lots of classic rock acts and all that kind of stuff pursued the record deals got signed to a record deal you know the kind of stuff that it never really panned out then went back to playing cover bands now i play in a mostly original band that plays covers here on long island but gigging constantly you know playing this south shore beaches and all that kind of stuff so which is so fun you know it's so funny you say well i had a record deal but we didn't get anywhere i can't tell Tell you how envious I am because I broke my chops for a long time and never got close to a record deal. Of course, yeah. I wasn't, you know, writing anything that anybody else would want to hear, but you couldn't have told me that. <laughs> right. I, but the, the, it, those times were so different in, in music and everything. And it's, it's it, the record company, the record industry was so different. So it wasn't some, what we did was not something to ever be envious of. <laughs> it is, it is, it's never not interesting. I can't stop reading about. The 50s and the 60s and the mobs and the craziness. And I got so many, you know, when I was in, <clears throat> uh, at the end of high school, I mean, I was I was salivating for the young rascals. And now those guys are my friends. You know, I still can't I still can't wrap my head around that. You know what I mean? It's interesting stuff. Yeah, the, the part in the book about <laughs> Leslie West, I get that. You were kind of starstruck by him. I remember seeing him as a, a teenager at UB's OTJs. You remember that one? <laughs> UB UB's it, it was a, a Long Island club it was on Sunrise Highway it was I recognize County. the name but you know in those days the South Shore might as well have been Pluto right you know we yeah. got drunk locally and then defied our ride home and then when in the 70s our bands played I think Massapequa was as far south as we got and that was a straight shot it wasn't towards the city or towards you know yeah had to be careful you know yeah, I get it. Uh, and so, uh, let, but I did want to talk about, there's so much in the book I want to talk about, but we only have an hour here. But uh, the uh, first, it starts with um, this whole idea that you might be somehow re- related to uh, we Teddy finally, Roosevelt. We finally got DNA, and I'm not going to go too much into it, but the way they found out that Jefferson had sired kids with Sally Hemings, uh, his African-American slave, was he didn't have any kids himself, and his father only had him. So that we had, they had to go to his grandfather and his grandfather's brother, and then take the DNA down the line from that. And that, and that's the route we wound up taking, not going to Roosevelt's father, but his father's brothers, kids, and all the way down to a Roosevelt in Texas, and finally found DNA, and and it didn't match. But uh, the thing is, in those days. If if there was a rumor, there was a rumor. There's no way anybody was proving anything, and uh, it was it was my great grandfather, and he worked at Sagamore Hill for years, and my grandmother was his oldest daughter, and had eight kids, and he went to Washington with uh, Teddy, and then stayed there till you know, 1916. You know, I mean, even you know, long after Teddy had left. But recently, something I found, which I'll send you, is the letters that Teddy wrote to my great-grandfather telling him, I need you in Washington. 
and him saying, well, I can't come right now. I can come in a month, which is, I mean, <laughs> Roosevelt, they made Roosevelt president because McKinley died. So Roosevelt ran to Washington and he, and he wrote to my great grandfather and said, Frank, I need you down here. You know, I'm president. And he said, well, Mr. President, I'll get there when I can. I said, well, if that's not proof that he's my relative, I don't know what it is. That's and you got to read out, you got to see how it reads. It reads from 1900. Like, it is not in my best interest to come now. However, in a month, it shall be of my best interest. You know, I'll, I'll email you the letters. You'll, you'll go crazy. So we so, recently found out it's not true. So what are you going to do? Were you disappointed to find out that it came back negative? No, because... Because there still could have been some monkey monkey business along the way. You know, everybody fooled around with everybody. And all it took was, you know, one guy making a mistake or one woman stepping out. And that would have broke the chain. So, you know, I'm not my my cousin, John Hammond, is the town historian. And he absolutely is. I mean, the way it lines up. I mean, there's no reason for a kid to be born in Maine and show up 25 years later working for the governor of the of new york city in, yeah. in his mansion you know it just you don't just knock on the door and say hi mr vanderbilt you need any help you know right. that's not it, how it works get it uh <clears throat> so in preparation for this mike zinn who works for the production company that that uh is doing your podcast tonight that premiering tonight called uh stand-up memories and let me bring that up for, uh, for people now uh he uh, we were discussing you and i said i could swear that jackie got his start at a place called richard m dixon's white house and he was like really i never heard of that place i was like you never heard of you're from long <clears throat> island and you don't know richard m dixon's you know white house? I, it's one. There's so many things that when you get past, I mean, you go up to a kid and say, "Hey, did you ever see Jay Leno?" And they'll say, "Jay Leno, who's that?" Not even <laughs> who's Johnny Carson. Like who's Jay Leno? You got to realize this stuff floats away. It's funny. I have a gig on February 18th at my father's. What used to be, you must have heard of my father's place. And I Rosler. played there a hundred times. So father's. so so Epi moved. Uh, it's, he's still the exact same guy. He moved to the Roslyn Hotel. And recently lost the gig, but I just got booked there with the new booker. And we we're talking about him. And I was telling them that Epi is the reason I'm a comedian because my band was playing at my father's place. And Epi's so cheap. It was a big deal for our little group to play at my father's place. So we went for our sound check and Epi had booked the gong show auditions for channel seven TV. And we couldn't do our sound check. So I'm watching the gong show auditions and I see this guy say, I'm, I'm funnier than this guy. And after I said, hey, uh, how'd you get to be a comic? He said, I had cards printed up. <laughs> and he showed me his card. And he said, you know what? Let me stay around and see. And he watched my band. He said, man, you are so funny. Why don't you come over to Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn? So I went to Dixon's and Eddie Murphy was there and Rob Bartlett and Dave Hawthorne and Bob Nelson, and me and Minervini, all these guys. And then Dixon wouldn't pay anybody, so me and Richie started a show in Huntington, and I created my dirty joke line, 516-922-WINE, to promote that show, and it was such a success. It actually lasted 15 years every Tuesday night at this place in Huntington on the corner of 25A and one, uh, Route 110, and that grew into the East Side Comedy Club. So Epi's lie grew into the Long Island comedy scene, which is just such a great story. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but also, 
Uh, I think everybody, cause the story of, of how your comedy career evolved from uh, your music career and Richie uh, telling you the little fib about um, the Rodney Dangerfield thing. And then oh, you, that's great. And then you writing the jokes for him. Mm-hmm. Now, I think, and until I read the book, I had no idea that you were the credit behind the two-bagger joke. Everybody I know has told that two-bagger <laughs> joke just thinking that it was a Rodney original, and, and we all got it from Rodney. Well, uh, well, it wasn't a Rodney original, but it wasn't a Jackie original. It's an, it's an old Southern expression, which I didn't know. I just <clears throat> This is a true story. I lived at my grandmother's house. And this was probably in the book. And the phone rang late at night, and nobody had this number. It was my buddy who was in Peru doing coke and selling coke. And he said, Chief, you got to listen to this. This is the funniest thing I ever heard. There's a guy down here called Tennessee Bob, and he told me about the Tennessee two-bagger. And he told me that. I wrote it down. And then when Richie told me his lie, I sent Rodney six pages of jokes. And that was one of the jokes on there. Now, when you get to know the comedy business and the comedy writing business, there's very, very little that's brand new. Everything is what fits where. You go to a movie, you know, so, there'll be a great joke in a movie and everybody will love it, but I'll know where that came from because it, with a simple twist, it's just setting something in the exact right place. Now, that joke's funny enough on its own, but my God, that was made for Rodney. You know what I mean? That fits him like a glove. But if you look around, you find all the jokes. You know, if there was ever a joke that sounds like it was created specifically for Rodney because he's so down and out and so beat up, he says, yeah, you know, my wife, I don't know how I'm doing. I don't know, Johnny. You know, my wife cut me down to twice a week. Well, that's nothing. Some guys she cut out altogether, which is very funny. (laughs) But I'm reading Gershon Legman's book, and that's from the Civil War. And it was about rationing. He said, oh, they're rationing cigarettes and they're rationing booze. He said, yeah, my wife even cut me down to twice a week. Another guy says, yeah, well, some guys she cut out altogether. That's, 19, that's 1861, you know what I mean? And that, that probably came from the Roman legions. You know, they, all of these things have been around forever and ever and ever and ever, which is when you study it, it's just fascinating, just fascinating. Yeah. Uh, that that is interesting because you're known as this guy with an encyclopedic uh, knowledge of jokes and, and and so forth. But I'm just wondering when you were a musician and focusing on guitar playing and getting a Fender Rhodes and whatever, changing your sound and all that stuff, and just focused on your music. Were you this uh, guy who just read joke books all the time? I mean, where did this I was? Back? I was. I have never been any different than I always was. I heard heard jokes when I was a kid and they stuck to my mind because I'm a mechanical engineer. I'm pretty smart. And the jokes just stuck with me. And I told them to people and they laughed. And when they laughed, I remembered them and I would tell jokes and I would get joke books when I was a kid in school. If you bought Catcher in the Rye, I got Charlie's best jokes. You know what I mean? It was one of those things. And I told jokes and listened. The main thing was not joke books, but it was listening. I listened to every drunk at every party, every pot party, every every bar. I was always the last one standing, you know, telling jokes and remembering them. And in 1975, when I was in my band, we told jokes in between. I, I mostly told the jokes, but we told jokes in between songs 
which I had done in high school and which I had done in college to the consternation of every, I mean, my college band, we're playing Rolling Stones. Like we play Gimme Shelter. And then I tell a dick joke. And people are like, <laughs> what is going on? You know, it just, it didn't fit, but I couldn't not do it. Because I'm used to staying at the bar telling a joke to two people and here's 350 people. And I just told the jokes and told the jokes. But it wasn't by design. Let me go learn some jokes because I want to be a comedian. Or they, It was just so organic. And there's nothing I enjoy more than telling somebody a joke. I, I want somebody to react like I just punched them in the stomach. That's how hard I want them to laugh. Right. And people say, oh, you tell dirty jokes. That's because that's what people laugh at. That they, It's the breaking of the tension that makes something funny. And anything about sex or crap or vomit or, you know, that's, much more tension and much bigger laugh, you know. And when, and when my I realized I couldn't do it in music, I said, "Well, I'm just going to take these jokes that I've accumulated over the years, just try telling them on stage, and and it worked, you know." So, but when Rodney called you for that <clears throat> uh, two weeks, that kind of uh, was a, a big change in your life. Uh, were you, were you doing a lot of stand up then? It seemed like you were doing more writing for him than actually going. No, 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 no. I. I sent him so much, but he took so little. And, you know, everybody, it, like my friend Dennis Blair was with him for like five years. He just, his dream was to write a joke that would somehow make it into Rodney's act. And it wasn't easy because, you know, it was so, you know, leather clad. And what happened was I wasn't even a comic. When we were fooling around, I didn't even know what to do. I maybe climbed on stage as Catch a Rising Star a couple of times. And I had just met Richie, Richie Minervini. And, you know, we're all trying to figure out, like, we're doing little tiny gigs. That, like, you know, I had my, my guitar amp and me, and I'm playing songs and telling jokes in a club. And the guys are showing up just to get stage time because there's no place besides Dixon's White House Inn. And people are hungry to get on stage to see what they can do. Like Eddie Murphy showed up and Bob Nelson, you know, they'd get there five or ten minutes. and when Richie told me that he had been on at Dangerfields, that was a huge deal because we weren't doing clubs. We weren't doing, there wasn't any place to do it. And I, I was so jealous. That's when I gave him all those pages. And and when he said he didn't have a connection to Rodney, I sent him to Rodney and Rodney called me up. It was such a big deal to go meet him at Westbury Music Fair, but I wasn't really a comic. I still had a ponytail and blue jeans, you know. He like, what the, what is this? Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then I always count my beginning. Of, that was in, uh, uh, when was, that had to be like 1978 when, when I was at my grandma's. Yeah, it's like in winter of 78. And I always count my time in comedy as, there's always a starting gun. And I say it was January 79 when I first got paid by Vic at the Rainy Night House. What I say is it's the first time I got paid for telling jokes and playing the guitar as opposed to playing the guitar and telling jokes. Now, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's like, I do. It's Absolutely. two different things. And right away, right away, we're killing at this place, Cinnamon, with these Tuesday night shows. So I've already been a musician. I worked in a recording studio, so I knew how to record. So I had microphones hanging all the time. So we started doing these shows on Tuesday nights. I had microphones hanging. And I decided I just decided to make an album. So I made an album out of a cassette 
I had the best cassettes. I had the crowd on the left side and Jackie on the right side, and I mixed them onto a two-track tape. I knew I could have an album because I had worked in a recording studio. The average person had no idea. If you want to have a record, it's like baking a cake. You need a tape, you need a couple pictures, and you need a few dollars. Right. And you and you send it away and you get it, but nobody knows that. It's like this. It's like Xanadu, you know. I, so I, all of a sudden, six months later, I wrote to Rodney and said, hey, look at this. I got an album. And he was there's like, There's so many references to that in the book where guys just, it just didn't occur to them how real, not, it takes hard work. It takes a bit of work. And you certainly did hustle and put that work into it. I'm not diminishing that, but how simple it is to really record an album. A lot of comics just never dawned on them how simple it is. Just record what you do. It's like, it's like. Not knowing that you could go to the store to buy a hamburger. You know, <laughs> nobody ever tells you you wouldn't do it. And then you see somebody with a hamburger, like, how'd you do that? Well, I went to the store and bought some chopped meat. You know, <laughs> it's 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 absurd, but it's like anything. If you don't know it, you don't know it. Knowledge is power. You know, right. you wouldn't believe, Matt, you would not believe for the first however long time. I stand at the door after the shows that we did. And I'd sell my albums for $5. And the guys used to goof on me. You wouldn't believe how they would make fun of me. And then one day somebody said, wait a minute. We made $40 and Martling made an extra 80 bucks selling his stupid albums. Maybe he's not, maybe he knows what he's doing, you know? Right. It's insane. And, and the albums uh, were pivotal uh, in the part of your career that most people who are not from Long Island know you from most of all, and that is the Howard Stern. Uh, I Stern. wish, I wish that he had to put in the movie my introduction to him because that would have put me on the moon. I put out an album and then I made a second album and then I made a third album. So by 1982, I had three Jackie the Joke Man Martling comedy albums, <clears throat> which was a big deal. It really wasn't. I made one, so I made another, so I made another. It's like Ikea. The second and third things are easier. You know what I mean? Right. And nobody, like, it, it was unheard of. It wasn't like I made an album and everybody else got the idea. Nobody even thought about doing it. It was years and years before people were even having cassettes. You know, when I, when I ran Governor's Comedy Shop, I had a cassette player, and the people would come and, and work the club, and I'd put in a 90-minute cassette, and I'd record Friday night first show, flip it over and do Friday night second show, and then Saturday night. And I, everybody that worked the club walked away with two cassettes with all four of their shows. Right. And it was like gold. I saw Carol Lee for a couple of years ago. She said, Jackie, I still got my governor's cassette. It's, it's my prized possession. You know who she, She's the girl that Elaine was, was uh, right. based I, on. Uh, yeah, I, and uh, I just always did that. And all of a sudden, this guy says, yeah, this guy, Howard Stern, got fired, and he's coming to New York. And I, I had no idea who he was, but I sent my three comedy albums. He doesn't know. What's anybody know? This guy's got three albums? He must be somebody. He must be a top guy. You know, like, like Bill Cosby's not going to send him his album, and George Carlin's not going to send him his album. <laughs> but, you know, because they, they they actually had albums with a record company and a deal. I'm just a guy that got them made. But if you hold them next to each other, one doesn't jump out at the other. Do you know right. what I mean? It's like, you know, and when he got the three albums, they were impressive. And if they did nothing else for me, from the word go, if they did nothing except have him call me, it was worth all the sweat.
All the blood, right. sweat, and tears. And, and part of that, when he was introducing you as one of the top comics in New York, all of a sudden you are elevated in people's minds because he had great listening with his 50,000-watt uh, station beyond New York. Everybody listening to that, all of a sudden you're elevated to the guys like who were, were uh, kings of the comedy clubs in New York at that time. So, you know, when he first started Rogers. saying, we got with us today uh, one of uh, New York's top comics, I, I, I went to correct him. In, in my mind, and I said, "Shut up!" Yeah. <laughs> you know that—that's his opinion. He doesn't—he does—he doesn't know that I'm not, right? You know, and 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 what yardstick anyway? I was a guy, you know, hosting the shows in Levittown on Long Island, right? You know, but the, the guys would come in, and you know, pretty soon the people were begging. You know, I asked so many comics to come on that show, and they'd say, "What's it pay?" I said, "What's it pay? It's fifty thousand watts of a guy telling your name to the tri-state area." But People so many guys, just, they, they just don't get it. They right. just don't get it. To this day, I see people and say, Jack, Jack, I can't believe I turned down going on the Howard Stern show in 1985, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and basically, you work for five bucks at Richard M. Dixon's. You're going to worry about uh, what <laughs> getting paid from a... You know, it, it's it's almost not believable, but it just happens to be the truth, you know. Yeah, yeah. I need you to clear something up for me because I told Eight to, inches. It's I, eight inches. Okay, that, thank you. Uh, <laughs> can we get a picture of it? Wait, we got a picture of Willie here. I that's, texted that's it That's you, Willie, right there. <laughs> oh, there he is. <laughs> um, I talked to a lot of Howard Stern fans who've been fans of his for back to the AM days and um, and continue to this day to listen to him. And I, I mentioned that Artie wrote the forward for your book. And in the forward that Artie says that he never engaged in uh, bashing uh, Jackie when the other people would would do that after you were gone and everybody said no Artie was definitely in the mix on that Jackie bashing stuff what's your take on it what's true did was Artie a uh Jackie basher or not I never I never listened to the show when I was on it I never listened to the show when we went on vacation I never listened to the show after I left I have never listened to that show ever which is so many people say oh you're bullshit you're bullshit I'm like why would I lie about that? Those big, those skin off my nose. Like that's not me. I don't wouldn't listen. If it made me laugh, I would have felt bad. And if it didn't make me laugh, I would be trying to think what I could do for it. So I had no idea. Artie and his friends used to come to see me at Rascals, and um, he even says that in my documentary. Um, and they were big fans. He was, you know, they he was a great guy. And I knew him, not well, but I knew of him. And he came on the show at Norm McDonald. But after I left the show, it wasn't like we, it was, I handed him the baton. He didn't come on the show till like eight months after I left. They tried all kinds of different guys and stuff. And I, so I, nobody ever said to me, Artie was giving you a hard time or this guy, you know, people would always tell me that Stuttering John was, was really crappy to me. And then I'd see him on, you know, in Bayville and be, hey, how you doing, buddy? You know, but I also know that, you know, everybody struggles for airtime. And if right. you say, if you start saying what a nice guy Jackie is, your microphone's going off, you know. Uh, did If Artie Bassery, maybe he did. I, I kind of don't think so, but maybe he did. He might have been so high he doesn't even know he did. That's I, true. I don't care. He just, <laughs> he's just a really good guy. He did my documentary. I did his direct TV show three times. I did his podcast three times. I did his new podcast about a month ago. 
He's a real good cat. And uh, I have never had a problem with him ever. And it's so funny because so many emails from people over the last 20 years or 15 years, whatever it is, you know, hey, I, it looks like you and Artie are friends again. I'm like, because there's such misconception that he wrestled me out of that chair. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, no. But once people have this, you know, there's still people that think I'm cheap. Still, I see people and they say, you want me to buy you a drink? I know you won't buy me one. You know, they're still yelling at me to pay back Rodney that I never owed him. You know, all the things that Howard carved in stone, I don't even get mad at it because it's just a testament to his sales power. Right. I mean, he could drive something home. He could, if anybody could convince the world that the earth is flat, Howard could have done it. You right. Know? Um, there's so many things I, I want to touch on there. But first of all, you talk I about. I will tell you, if we, if we don't get everything done, I, I'll do this with you anytime, in a week, in a month, six months, because I love talking about this stuff. People say, oh, I know you're sick of sex. I never get sick of talking about this ever because it's interesting. Yeah, it is to everybody, I think. Now, and the... and Matt, I get, I never, I never make stuff up. I only tell the truth, and it's really good for me to get the truth and my sh side of the story out because there's a lot, so many misconceptions. You know, the whole thing about me having a sex change, I got to tell you right now, that's only partially true. <laughs> I was sure that one was real. <laughs> but misconceptions that the idea, and you talk about this in the book, that you were writing the the, the funniest stuff that Howard said. I think you think that people didn't know that. I think from my perspective, it was common knowledge that uh, that uh, that Jackie was slipping. Uh, That's the circle that you're in. That's the circle you traveled in. You probably traveled with musicians and funny people and showbiz people that are hip to it. Right. Um, but that's not even true. I was, I was, uh, I went to see the sub dudes at the Iridium about 15 years ago. I'm sitting there, my girlfriend couldn't come. So I, I love these guys. So I'm watching this guy sitting across from me in the table. He says, Hey, you Jackie? I said, yeah, yeah. How you doing? Oh yeah. I'm a cameraman at the, uh, you know, NBC TV, whatever it was. He was somebody, in the throes of show business and we start talking and we get talking he had no idea and this is a guy in show business in the throes in the guts of the operations but the, it's it's not stupidity who thinks about it right you don't watch johnny carson and say wow i wonder who wrote that monologue joke who cares you're laughing you're enjoying yourself you're not there to work and he was so surprised, and it's it's so funny. I know I'm sure you know the chapter in the book where Dom DeLuise was blown away, and Bruce Jenner had no idea what I was doing. Right, and that was such an A B situation. So many people, so many people had absolutely no idea. No, so many people, it was just as obvious as the day was long. You know, Bruce actually, I, and this is was hard for me to wrap my head around. Bruce actually believed that you were just writing the time down and handing him a note he, about. Well, he he what he didn't know. He he just he, he was sitting next to me, but he wasn't watching. He said, "What do what what do you keep writing?" And I said, "I got to tell Howard what time it is." And he says, "That's what I thought." You know, because every couple of minutes, you know, I could have been saying ten minutes still commercial. You know, I'm yeah. trying to cut him a break here, as, as opposed to you moron. Why don't you go have your penis cut off? You know? <laughs> oh man! Well, I was. <laughs> 
I was trying to explain to, to my wife your situation last night that 20 years ago, you walked away from a job that was paying $600,000 a year and or, or, or just about $600,000 a year. And she said, how could anybody do that? Why would anybody do that? And I was trying to explain that you were part of something that was probably bringing in $500 million a year. And you every, know, everybody it, was, was- it was so staggering. Uh, like what I walked away from uh, was six fifty, and with with bumps for the next, you know, for the for the five years, and I was making five eighty at the time, and even more with the e show and whatever. But yeah, like you know, people say, "Oh, you were making so much money for a writer." I said, "I wasn't a writer." I, that's like telling Ringo, "You make a lot of money for a drummer." I'm not a drummer. I'm a drummer in the Beatles. Right. You know what I mean? It was like. But nobody else would would peep, there was not a peep out of anybody. So I was the only bird screaming for another worm, which made me look. You know, it's so funny because how had everybody called me cheap? You know, right. He's making fifty million dollars a year, and I'm asking for more money, so I'm cheap. You know, right. but he sold it. He some people never even people like oh, you know, I never thought of that. You know, right? And but he did the same thing with holding out for more money. And be, right before you did what's two kind of, weeks, two weeks before, we didn't know if we're coming back from Christmas. Yeah, we had no idea because he's holding. You know, you know, it's just, you, you know what, Matt. It's all Animal Farm. You know, we become what we mock. You know, right. you yes. can't hold out for more money. Hold on, I'll be right with you. I gotta, I gotta go hold out for more money. You know, it's like, Jesus. Right. You know, so th the bottom line there, though, do, do you have any regrets about not uh, signing on with their management team and being part of that original? Uh, no, no. You know, uh, after after it was gone, uh, I wrote to them said I would really like to be on the show if you want to have me back because it wasn't the money or the fame, but I'll tell you what you miss is sitting in a room with three or four other really funny people for five hours and laughing five days a week. That is not something found. In, in 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 the world. That's just not something that exists. And I just love that. And I was in withdrawal. As far as signing with Don Buckwald, I not in a million not with a gun to my head. You know, I I remember like the day after we went to mornings, Howard said, Hey, I got some great news for you. Don's gonna represent you. And right away I said, No. You know, K Rock gives Don money. He gives most of it to Howard. Some of what's left he gives to Robin. And then a little bit of what's left he gives to Fred. I'm going to be the fourth worm. I mean, the fourth little chickadee with his mouth open waiting to get fed. You know, I mean, he's got, there's no way Fred could ever ask for a raise because Don would have to go in and negotiate with Don. Right. You know, it's like, take what, take what I'm handing you and be glad, you know. And it just seemed like. So, like my cousin Craig was was almost a professional baseball player. He was AAA a long time. And he said an agent couldn't have two players on the same team. Right. You can't say, yeah, I'll give you Phil Rizzuto, but you got to sign Tony Kubek too. You, that, that's not fair. You, that's nice 1950s baseball reference. But, but you know, it's um, <laughs> it, 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 just, it just felt wrong, felt weird, you know. Yeah. It, it was icky, you know. Right. You mentioned the, uh, the Beatles, and I do think you guys were the Beatles of radio. I mean, the, the biggest um, sensation in radio ever 
to happen. Uh, but you know, it, for years, for years, I don't mean the day, for years, they broke my balls for coining that, for daring to call us the Beatles a radio. Howard hated that and probably still hates it because that infers that it's a group. Right. That the, that we, the rest of us have something to do with it. Yeah. To him, to him, it's James Taylor with a backup band, Very know, which is which is yeah. not entirely true. It just you know I tell people, people say, "Oh, you wrote everything Howard said." I said, no, I didn't. I didn't. I wrote some of it. I wrote some funny stuff. So did Fred. But I always use the same analogies. If you're a sprinter, and you run the hundred yard dash in nine point eight, I don't know what the times are now. Nine point eight, you're world class. Right. If you run it in 9.9, I mean, if you run 9.9, you're world class. If you run it 9.8, you break all records that ever were. And that only takes a little bit of wind in your back. And that's what I was, and that's what Fred was, a little wind in his back. He just right. It just rose him above, above everybody else. You know, where somebody else would say something funny, he'd say something funny, and then something funnier, and then something funnier. And And the great thing was, he was a guy with three different senses of humor, his and mine and Fred's, but they were all completely different. It wasn't just three minds working fast. It was three completely different minds working fast. So the jokes were from everywhere. Like Fred was from Pluto and I was from Punchlines and Howard was from this broad observation. And it was like coming at you from all sides. It was like... Uh, it would it would freak people out. You know, you say something really bright, and then the stupidest, childish thing in the world, which juxtapositions are, are just it just made it just made good, 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 good radio and great, great comedy. And people yeah. loved it. You know. Now, my take on that is Howard was always naturally funny, but what you gave to him and what the illusion that he was witty, and his sister even makes that comment in your book, well, Howard, when did you become so witty? I think, and quick with a, a and that people got the perception, I think, and you gave him that uh, on top of what he already had with observational humor and, and that kind of stuff and outrageousness, but you gave him this uh, air of being witty and quick, and I think that's the, the greatest gift you gave to him does he any way now that he's changed and, and been through psychotherapy even acknowledge that in any way he, you know it's supposedly him and robin everybody went around and made up with everybody not made up but apologize or what or, or did this and did that and you know i mean he had a world war with chevy chase and now it's his best buddy and he never i mean he always acknowledged to me you know but he he's never said you know uh, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't Jack. You know, forget about anything like that. You know, it's, it's. I tell people, he was driving the bus, so he couldn't read the map. But he's driving the bus, so I can look at the map and I could say, you know, it'd be really funny if we took a quick ride onto Smith Street. You know what I mean? It was like yeah. you couldn't do both, and he, like if he had a. It's such a, I can't believe that I put out that book and I had a whole extra book, a whole book full of chapters that didn't make it into the book. And I didn't put in the chapter about the making of private parts, which had, it, it had every, it had them leaving me out, them underpaying me, them not giving me credit, 
them hiding stuff, them leaving me out. It th That's a whole book in itself. I can't believe that didn't make it in. And uh, it, it was just, they were going to do a movie. And it wasn't going to have me in it. And I don't think it was going to have Fred in it. Right. And, and this, they, uh, you were still there in that because that was no, like No, no, and right? they scrapped it. No, no, this is this is we're at K-Rock and they're working on a movie and I'm there in the foxhole. Right. And I know that they're all going to the production company and I'm out of it. And then they scrapped the whole movie and what they did was they came up with a format that would enable them to never have to show me handing me Howard a note. Uh, you watch private parts. I come in at the end, like they already went to Pluto, and I just happened to step on the bus as they pulled into Pluto. Uh, you know, this it, is Jackie, our newest member, and you know, if, if he had even if he hadn't held up my albums, that Jackie sent me these albums, I would have been a hero. You know, right? It seems like the only time he ever used the kill switch was to hide the fact that you were <laughs> passing him notes, right? Um, you know, I uh, the uh, you know the that whole story about Fred with Elton John, is that what you're talking about? That yeah, one, yeah. That's such a great, God knows, God knows how many times he did that. Uh, Gary actually told me about that. And you, you, it's one of those things you wouldn't know it but when you're looking for it. Yeah. You right. see it, you know, and, uh, but you know that I don't fault him because it's eye of the tiger. If he, if that wasn't him, that wouldn't be him. Right. You know, you, you you know, people are what they are. You know, you don't get to be Howard Stern unless you're Howard Stern. You know, which so I I you know, people say, Oh, Jackie does podcasts and all he can he can't wait to bitch and moan and, and bash Howard. I have never bashed him at all. I no. will tell the truth and say I passed a lot of notes and I'll tell stories of things that happen, but that's not bashing, that's funny. You know, people tell stories about me and I tell stories about Gary and you know. It's that's it's all fair game, you know. Absolutely, I can say unequivocally, there's no Howard bashing in the book. It's you point out some real behaviors, but never once did you say, you know, uh, Howard's a bad guy because of this. But I think you're getting some of the dirt because Stuttering John is out there. He, his entire career now is based on Howard bashing. So when people see people that, people have and, told me that. People have told me so. They probably assume that's what I'm doing too. Exactly. You know? That was my point. That so, and he's not the only one. A lot of people who were lower on the on the totem pole than you were uh, at that Howard Stern show, who now uh, resent Howard, even though he's the only reason anybody even knows who they are. They're making their living completely by bashing him. So people just assume you're out there, and if you mention Howard Stern, you must be one of these guys who is making his living now bashing Howard Stern. Right. Meanwhile, I was a comic for a long time before I met him, and, you know, I, I got really lucky in comedy. I really may never become as well-known a comic as I did being on his show. But I don't know I wouldn't have either. You know, there's a famous story about Hillary, that Hillary Clinton was getting gas. And uh, somebody said, hey, uh, you did pretty good, you know, uh, marrying the president. You're married to the president of the United States. That's pretty cool. You know, hey, what about, what if you were, what if you were married to a guy who owned a gas station? And Hillary said, then he'd be president. <laughs> you know, think about it. Like, it's not like if I hadn't met Howard, I would have sat in the corner and twiddled my thumbs. You know, I would have kept 
send them my crap and send them my crap until I bumped into you. You know what I mean? Like, I who hear knows? You. Who knows? My, my biggest takeaway from the book, and I'm going to show the book again here for a second. My biggest takeaway from the book is a line that you, you use in there. And it's, it's a cliche kind of, but it's absolutely true. And in your case, this is what I, my, my big takeaway from the book is. The harder you work, the luckier you get. And that's uh, it, a really important message. I think anybody in the creative arts can learn that much from that book and the stories in the book. It's, it's worth the investment. You know, the whole world, I mean, that's, you know, the right place at the right time. But the secret is that being a lot of places, then there's going to be a time, you know, it's uh, I like, you know, I just, I just threw a, at the end of the Howard Stern first chapter about Howard in the book, I said, you know, for all those years, I just threw crap against the wall. And with the Howard Stern show, my crap stuck to the wall, which is yeah. the same thing. You know, you, you just, you just keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. You know, I worked so hard and was, I, just did everything I could to get pinnacle books to put out a joke book. And I was relentless and relentless and relentless. And finally, Larry Wilde left to go to a different company. And I wrote and said, guys, Larry Wilde's gone. Put out my book. And they wrote, I swear to God, they wrote back like, all right, Jackie, all right, enough. We'll put out your book. <laughs> and the minute that they said yes to publishing my book, all the work and all the begging and all the crap I went through melted away. I was a guy who had a book deal and nobody had to know that I didn't just write and say, Hey, I got a book. And that they said, fine. Right. You know, nobody, nobody has to know, you know, Madonna slept on the floor at K rock trying to get her records played. Yeah. Who cares? You know, she got her records played obviously, you know? Yeah. Um, now the joke, uh, before you were even on the Howard Stern Center, I knew who you were. And I think most people on Long Island knew you from the joke line. Now, I, I, I'm curious about this. Was it before phone sex? Did you do the, the joke line before phone sex was the big rage thing? And you know, you I, I got to believe that the minute Alexander Graham Bell invented the phone, somebody was doing breathing heavy into it. Uh, but, yeah, it had nothing to do with phone sex. Um, and no, it I, it's so that... funny because to this day, I don't think myself I've ever done it, phone sex, but, uh, no, and it wasn't, and people used to say, oh, wow, you must've got really rich with those 800 numbers and with those, with that 800 line. I said, it wasn't an 800 line. It was my mother's house. Five, it one, cost six, me three. for every line. I had 10 lines. I've been paying for it for 43 years. You people that don't know, it's 516 nine four six three which is five one six nine two two wine and we were starting the show in huntington and we had no money i said how are we going to promote the show and i got the bright idea i'll get a phone line i'll tell a joke and then say well tonight we're at cinnamon's in huntington and then tell another joke which is basic that's television that's radio you know a little material a little bit of advertising a little material a little advertising and it just caught on like wildfire and the stories go on and on the first time we were on the road i think in los angeles at one of those radio conventions where everybody's sitting around in a circle and rick rubin you know rick rubin yeah of course he sat down across from us it's like 1988 or something and the first thing he said he pointed over and said jackie i went to long beach high school and i called 922 wine every morning before school <laughs> He's a pretty major guy, you know. Like, yeah. of course, I've been writing to him for the last 20 years trying to get him 
to admit that he said that because that's a nice that's a nice little promotion, you know. But it was an extremely inventive idea for you because nobody else had done that, at, at least to my knowledge, ever before. So it's just like you know what's so funny. There it is again. There's the exact same thing. I went and bought some hamburger meat and made a hamburger, and they said, "How'd you do that?" What's more obvious than you know what happened was they invented answering machines. So right. instead of calling up and having me say, I'm not home, leave me a message, I'm saying, this is Jackie, and as long as you're on the phone, I've got you trapped, let me tell you a joke, and then let me tell you where I'm working. It it really is such a simple, simple concept. Oh, they already did have dial-a-joke, so I, I can't take the credit for, you know, for the know idea that. of jokes yeah. on the phone, but but for once again, but that was dial-a-joke, that was New York City. That was George Carlin having an album. That's Robert Klein having an album. That's not a guy in Oyster Bay with a phone line with an answering machine. You know, they, it, it was a whole, a whole dumbed down situation. You know, it was like a, it was like going local, which right. always works. You know, yeah, so fun. You know, and, and part of the book for stand-up comedians, people who are doing it now, there's so much uh, cool history in there, and. Uh, I do have a lot of stand-ups in, in my listening audience. And if you would, because everybody is familiar with the uh, comedy condo, the idea of a comedy condo. Very few people have any idea where it came from. If You, if you know you what? I don't from... even know. I don't even know if the guys, like the early comic strip guys, I, I've never really sat and had the conversation with them. The guy, the guy I'm doing the, the, uh, podcast with which is how i got to know you peter bales was actually one of the early guys peter bales used to come to see my band at a place called rum runner in oyster bay i remember rum runner and he come over from locust valley because on tuesday nights all the local girls were there and there were drunken oyster bay girls that you know with round heels that would bang anybody that sneezed so he would come over there and he liked my band and he noticed i told jokes and then we started doing the show in cinnamon and he would drive out from the comic strip you know, with Carol Leifer and Dennis Wolfberg and Rick Overton and these people, because they're coming to Huntington and getting paid 40 or 50 bucks and getting drunk and getting stoned and getting laid, as opposed to running from Catch a Rising Star to the improv and getting a hamburger. So everybody loved it. And then the Fort Lauderdale, I mean, the comic strip got uh, syndicated. Richie put the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale and he, and he got a condo for the comics, a beautiful right. condo. And they were so out of control that they got kicked out of the building, I think, in a month. It might have been less than a month. And he rented some, you know, shoddy house, and they moved into the house. But it just became the comedy condo, which was kind of like, in quotes, you know, like, con yeah, right. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. And it's... and. It, in the early days, like there were times you went and worked a gig, like in in Richmond, Virginia, where you stayed on a waitress's couch. <laughs> but that was the comedy condo, which is just so fun. And you know, it's funny now. It wasn't funny when you're you know trying to rationalize. I'm 34 years old. And I'm sleeping on a couch. 
right. you know, I'm really in show business, you know. Yeah, and we when we recently did a podcast on it, and there were friends of uh, Andy Andrews who were talking about the you know his walk, his uh, room was really a one of those Japanese room divided type of things. <laughs> right, but, right, right. It's every everything you could possibly imagine. Yeah, you know? uh, but now it's a staple. So and so you actually, and I was talking about this before. You've seen the evolution of you know comedy clubs. L.A. had you know. Uh, the comedy store and New York had Caroline's and, and, and so forth and Dangerfield, of course, and the Fort Lauderdale scene, but comedy clubs were not a thing nationwide. Until no, right there was the comedy the store in LA and there was the improv in Manhattan and right. then catch a rising star. Uh, the comic strip actually was much later. And, uh, that's right when I came aboard, but, uh, it was, it was very slow going, you know, I mean, there just weren't a lot of people. Because there weren't any comics. Rick Overton said to me one day, he said, you know, there's only 150 of us. And he said, think about that. He said, right, probably in New York City alone, there's probably, you know, 5,000 brain surgeons and there's only 150 of us. Right. And I was so excited that he even included me in the us. But now there's 150,000 comedians. Right. You know, it's like anybody, you know, oh, look, comedy tonight. Well, let me stop in there and see if I can go on, you know. So it's just gotten really, you know, it's almost any, like any, anybody can walk onto Yankee Stadium and play shortstop for an inning, which is not really how it should be, you know. Yeah. Um, so your podcast is launching tonight, 7 p.m. Is it's, I'm imagining it's pre-recorded. It's not one of live. Yeah, it's pre-recorded. It's probably live already. I haven't looked, you know, for whatever reason. I haven't looked. It's uh, standupmemories.com. Either with or without the hyphen, standupmemories.com takes you to the website, and then you can go to YouTube or or, or Spotify. I don't know. How, however, the you know they always say most of these same stations. You know, I've never gotten that crap straight. But tonight we're actually going to be on YouTube Live, and we're going to watch it and watch the people comment. And I already told told uh, Okay. Michael's in. I said, be ready because this is this is where the stern haters come out. You know, there'll be one guy saying, oh, uh, yeah. Jackie, I love you. And 90 people saying he owes Rodney money. He, he bashes Howard. He's a piece of crap, you know. But, uh, you know, the, you, you, you just you, you laugh it off and then you walk away and it, you know. And it irks you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I get it. And that sucks. I mean, this, the internet is just made for trolling, man. That's I'll tell it. you the one thing I love. I love having my book out. You wouldn't believe how many people have written to me or emailed me or said to me, holy mackerel, did your book open my eyes? I didn't know any of that stuff. Probably never thought about it. And it's so funny because a year or two ago, I got a huge bump in sales. And the publisher called me up and said, what did you do? What show did you go on? You know, what, you know what, what, did you, what did you do? Yeah, I went on uh, Mind Dog. And... Uh, <laughs> And then I realized what happened was Howard put out a book. Oh, yeah. And if you buy a book on Amazon, underneath it says people who bought this book also bought this book. Yeah. They already got their mouse out. They already got the credit card there. And with one click, they got my book, too, for $15. So I got a huge bump in sales. Because Howard never said to his audience, Jackie has a book out or or don't. Even if he said don't buy Jackie's book, people go, what book? You know, people had no idea. Right. So it's been an uphill battle trying to get it sold, but you know. 
Uh, but about the book, because uh, I did want to talk uh, just a little bit more about the podcast, but about the book, oh, you wrote a memoir. You're still young young enough that you have big things ahead of you. And you, there's got to be another uh, a follow-up, right? Because you're not done. Usually people write their memoirs when they're done. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote enough for two books. So I have a whole – if you really didn't read the book, I'm going to send you the unpublished book. There's a whole nother book's worth of chapters, but I can't even tell you, like even if I retired from everything right now, I got more stories coming out of my ears. You know, I, I just look around in my, you should come visit my office. You'd get a kick out of it. But I look at my office and I see, you know, a, a cell of the Flintstones with me on stage in, in at Blackrock or whatever it is, and me with Keith Richards and Les Paul and and joke man plates and martling street and all the times i was on stern and all the all the notes for rodney and the cartoon by don martin just that random looking and all of those things lead to incredibly fun eclectic stupid maybe not especially knockdown drag out funny but interesting stuff how things lead to other things and i just i never get sick of that so yeah no i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna keep writing you know i just i wrote a whole long story the other day, just because if, if you see somebody you haven't seen in a long time and they say, oh, I'm friends with so-and-so. You want to tell so-and-so the story about the friend that you have in common. And next thing you know, like, oh, yeah. And as you start writing, like, it gets nuts, you know. Yeah. If I thought somebody was going to buy it, I'd be writing books like crazy. But, you know, my... So there were millions and millions and millions of fans, but not that many people bought my book. I mean, I'm not complaining. Yeah, I made some money, but I, I, it would have been so nice if the word had gotten out a little. And I waited too long. I waited 15 years or 17 years. You know. Yeah. Um. People, I think if you would have really bashed Howard, it probably would have been a better seller. <laughs> uh, everybody, everybody says that, you know, yeah. like, Oh, Jackie, you know, you're, you're, you're a pussy. Why didn't you write a real, why didn't you write what you really feel? I'm like, you know, and, but most people with any brain say, wow, that's a, it's a heartfelt book. It, it really makes sense. I, I got a documentary that's coming out. Uh, we're screening it at Chappaqua on February 12th, Lincoln's birthday duck. And, uh, it's, um, and it's good. And right now, a couple of the cable companies have it. And we'll hope if it gets sold, it'll be so fun because it's, it basically kind of accomplishes what the book did. And, but if, if it got on one of those cable companies, any Stern fan, even the people, you know, even the people that hate me would be interested. And it would, right. it's just an eye opener, you know, so. I don't know, and again, you're probably right about the circles that I run in. I don't know of anybody who hates you. I just think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about stuff. But I think a lot of people have turned on Howard now. A lot of the his most loyal people just see a change in him, and he's gone really Hollywood, and and this woman that's got his his Mephisto kind of uh, Jones, whatever it is, right, right. Him. And so, people tell me it took him a long time. To finally come around to realizing, holy crap, he's not that funny. Right. You know, like like uh, it, it's either you're, either you're there with a line or you're not. That was never his job. That's not what he did. Right. You know, he's he's a, he's not a joker. He's a talker, and he's so good at it. You know. Right. 
Um, uh, with the podcast now, you and Peter Bales, are you having other guests on, or is it just you and him every? every what time? happened was these guy, this guy Mike Cave, who has PinkTie.org. Have you ever heard of that charity? Yeah. Yeah. He's a great, great guy, and he's got so much going. He's got so many things going on. So we started Tied In Media, which is this media company, uh, and he has a beautiful room and a beautiful green room, and it's a whole studio, and he's a friend. And he's always, ever since I met him, he always wanted to do something with me. And he said, what about doing a podcast? I said, yeah, all right, we'll, we'll give it a shot. And Peter Bales is my, my oldest, dearest friend. He's the one that dragged me into the comic strip in Manhattan and jump-started me. I said, why don't you come be my guest? And we yacked. And after a couple hours, I said, you know what? This should be our show, not my show. This should be our show. And we came up with stand-up memories because he's a professor and a comic that's been around for 40 years. And I've been around for 40 years. And we know everybody. You know, so we started talking. We have 20 shows in the can ready to go, one a week for 20 weeks. We haven't spoken to another human being yet. Do wow. we plan on it? We, do, yeah, of course we plan on it. I got probably 50 texts and emails from Jackie, I'm perfect for your show. I'll be perfect for your show. You got to have me on. The one thing we're not going to do is sit there with another comic so he can try and be funny and, and tell you, you know, comics aren't good interviews. You right. know, um, unless they're a little bit off the beaten track, you know, like, like radio people have always said to me, man, it's such a joy to have you in. Cause you get right to the joke and right to the story. You know, other comics are like, prod me, prod me, get me going. You know, it's like, you know, you just take the microphone and you're off to the races. Broadcasters appreciate that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and some of the guys I, I've interviewed, I've interviewed a lot of comics, and some of them just want to do material and want to send me stuff before to kind of lead them into their materials. Like, right, well, who interested. wants to do that? Who yeah, wants no, to do that? The you audience know. isn't interested in that either. They're interested in real-life stories and, and, the, and the kind of stuff that you brought here, so I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, what's going on behind the curtain, you know? Yeah. Uh, just one more question before I let you go, because we are an hour in. I don't want to disrespect your time. The Gelman thing. You're that, not disrespecting my time. I got nothing to do. I, <laughs> I love talking about myself, but oh. pretend I didn't say that. Okay, I appreciate that. I'm not it, talking about myself. talking about the comedy, especially you're from Long Island. We we could do who do you know for a million years. I will say February eighteenth. No. What night is it? February eighteenth at which which is this Jesus? February twelfth is the document. February eighteenth, um at my father's place. That's not my father's place It's the Roslyn Hotel. It's the Roslyn Cellar. I'm with Susan Akila, who is a violinist. Uh with a great band. It's her show. I'm just doing like opening 20 minutes and they're great guys. It's Joe G and, um, and Susan, and they have like a five or six piece band and it's going to be so much fun. And the Roslyn cellar, I mean, and it's literally down the street from the old, my father's place, which I get such a kick out of. Right. So I, just, right. I wanted to give that a plug because we're here. We're talking about Long Island, you know? Yeah. Well, the book has a different feel for me being a Long Islander. And I think it would be for people who only know you from the Stern show. Cause you mentioned so many things that, uh, nostalgic for me in a way. I mean, mentioning clubs I know and how they got started and all that stuff. Right. You look up and next thing you know, you've been daydreaming for 20 minutes about the old days, which I think is a great thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but the Gelman stuff, is that the, uh, 
the Gelman incident. Is that the uh, straw that kind of uh, broke the, the uh, camel's back with your relationship with Howard? Is that was that the beginning of the end? Or? Oh, oh, the the practical joke. Yeah. Oh no, no, that was just something really, really funny. That happened years ago. That was on Shelter Island. That was one of the great stunts. That was one of the great stunts. You people, um, I just pulled a stunt. We were out to dinner, and one of our rivals, that our on-air rivals, it was uh, Kathy Kathy Lee Gifford's producer. It's too long a story to go into, but imagine if it's somebody that you've always had words with and and kind of a professional, uh, you know. Uh, Howard was a, a a constant Kathy Lee and Frank Gifford. Right, guest. so much animosity, right. and here we are sitting in this little tiny space. And they're at one table and we're in the other table. And I pulled the waitress aside and said, uh, listen, I want you to bring Howard a joke. I bring Howard a drink and tell him it's from Michael Gelman. And she said, what? I can't. I said, listen, and I gave her, I'd love to say I gave her a hundred bucks. I think I gave her 20 bucks <laughs> and said, look, just do it. And when I went to do it, Stuttering John and Scott Einziger, who was the producer of the E-Show, Ran out, ran out of the room. They didn't want anything to do with it because they, they don't want to get in trouble, you know. And so this waitress in this little tiny room brought Howard a drink and said, this is from Mr. Gilman. And Howard is six six, and he stood all the way up and raised his glass and said, Gilman! And it was so obvious that Gilman had no idea what the what the hell he was talking about and it was just the it was just so mean but so harmless and so funny and all six foot six hour just sat back down in his chair and i'm next to him he said the waitress told me the drink was from gelman and i said i know that's that's what i told her to tell you he, he was pissed you know he was so pissed and then he came in monday he said you know what i told your daughters what you did to me and they thought it was the funniest thing they ever heard. Yeah, because the, the, the tides get turned on the big guy. That's, you know. Uh, beautiful. And that was my job. That was my job, to throw a little sand in the gas there. Beautiful, beautiful story. Well, uh, I do want to wrap this up because I do want to get the audio out in time to promote your thing for tonight so people will be on it. Uh, again, it's called Stand Up Memories. The link will be in the description for you folks. I hope people will tune in tonight. Again, Jackie will be in the chat room and, 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 and looking at some of your comments and maybe even commenting back. So uh, I really appreciate your time here. This Let morning. me tell them, email me, especially you overseas people, Jokeland, not Jokeman, J-O-K-E-L-A-N-D, Jokeland at AOL.com. All my gigs are on Jokeland.com. I tweet a dirty joke every day at Jackie Martling on Twitter. And look for the documentary, Jokeman. And Matt, I really appreciate this. I hope we get to do it again. I don't know if I have your email address. Do I have your email? Yeah, address? yeah. We've been writing back and forth for about a week now. You get, oh, you know, but I didn't know what. I didn't know, I didn't know <laughs> if it was through Matt. I didn't know it was through Matt. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, through Mike. Mike, Matt, Dave. Yeah. Mike, Matt, we're all the same person. Uh, yeah. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, and please do come back uh, whenever and anytime. You're always welcome back here. Thank you so much. You know what? I always tell interviewers. A lot of times, people say, "God, I wish you had asked Jackie about this." Ask about so if people ask you 
just keep a list of all the stupid things, all the stupid questions. And if we do this again, you could say, all right, I got a list of 20 things that people were curious about, you know, right. and, cool. and then we're off and running, you know, uh, we got a lot of those. I just didn't bring them up today. And there are people in the chat rooms right now, just asking stuff like that. And, uh, but, uh, if we, if we had time today, but I do want to get the audio out so people will know about it for tonight. Prom so. Just promise me we'll do this again. We definitely will do this at your convenience, my friend. I would love to have you back. Thank you. And I would love you to come out here and see Joe Glenn. Thank you very much. I Thank really, you. really appreciate it. Thank you, Jackie. Have a great day, and we'll look forward to talking to you tonight. Great. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Jackie, the joke man, Martling, folks. Fantastic uh, conversation there. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. I hope you will check out his show tonight uh, and be part of it. Uh, so I don't have another program on for tonight because we are, uh, I'm in the book mode myself. I have to finish up the book. So I'm kind of putting some of the shows on uh hold tomorrow i have tommy chung at 1 p.m uh with me of course morning uh, coffee with the dog tomorrow morning 9 a.m to 11 a.m but uh tommy chung at 1 a.m and we'll be taking your comments then and a chance for you to chat with uh the fabulous tommy chung yourself kind of ask him some questions and i believe carl and jamie will be sitting in at least for part of that interview so I uh, hope you'll check me out then. been great having you here this morning. Thanks for coming. I appreciate all of you. Love to everybody who's uh, been supportive of, of the program up until now. And thanks. And keep on coming. Tell your friends about it. Keep on coming back. And always remember to turn on your radio.
Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.